Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. All of us know something of the story of the Battle of Antietam, the bloodiest day in all of American military history. We focused our attention on the cornfield, the sunken road, Burnside's Bridge, and when the armies left for other battlefields, our attention has gone with them, largely forgetting the human cost imposed by this and other battles on the people who live in what became hallowed ground. Stephen Cowie has not forgotten, though. He has spent 15 years researching the effects of September 17, 1862 on the civilians living on or near the battlefield, and his work is now published in a groundbreaking volume, When Hell Came to Sharpsburg, The Battle of Antietam and Its Impact on the Civilians Who Called It Home. We'll talk with author Stephen Cowie tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University here in Greenville, North Carolina, uh, sitting in the chair provided to me by the History Department, but not speaking for the History Department or anybody else, just for myself, as likewise my guests will be doing, always just for ourselves. It's the... uh, first month of 2023. We're on our second, third show of the new year. I've lost track already. Two shows in. Uh, Here we are. And it's uh, uh, not cold outside. It's it's January, but we're in North Carolina. That's where East Carolina University is, not South Carolina, but North Carolina. And it's not particularly cold, but it's wintertime. And a new semester is underway. I'm got uh, four classes, something I haven't had to teach in a long time, but it's interesting doing it. 
and one of them is American military history since 1900 that I'm finding particularly enjoyable. Haven't taught it very often in the past. I think this is only the second time I've taught it in person. So there's there's the sense of novelty about it. Uh, I certainly like the Civil War class that I'm teaching, both the undergraduate and graduate versions uh, this semester. Always good to teach that, and there's some great students in there. But uh, but I've also taught it many times. Uh, and yet there's always something new there as well. Uh, I think I maybe asked you this before on the show, uh, but... This semester, the enrollment in the undergraduate Civil War Civil War course is lower than it maybe has ever been, even though we haven't been offering it too much, because that'll drive down enrollment. Uh, and I'm curious what you think as to why that is. Send me an email if you have a theory. Uh, the, the prevalent theory among people I've, I've asked around here is that students are, are afraid it will turn into a, a political... Uh, match in, in the course that, that people will will express their views and it will get uncomfortable I would hope political discussions wouldn't make everyone uncomfortable but uh, but maybe that's what they're concerned about I don't know uh, in terms of positive things in Civil War memory issues or Civil War news something crossed my uh, uh, screen just in the last 60 minutes to share with you which is a, a new Civil War trails marker going up in Goldsboro, North Carolina. Uh, if you live on the East Coast of the United States, you're familiar with Civil War trails. You've seen the markers that they put up uh, commemorating not just major battles. Those, those are already you know, Park Service recognized, but markers where something happened that otherwise wouldn't be remembered. There's a couple such markers here in Greenville, North Carolina, for particular incidents. And now there's going to be a new one in Goldsboro recognizing the 135th USCT, uh, United States Colored Troops that were formed there. This regiment has not gotten a lot of publicity, not gotten a lot of historical attention, but uh, local citizens and historians in Goldsboro have, uh, they formed a 135th USCT research team uh, seven years ago. And been collecting information, exploring the archives, uh, coming up with enough data to show uh, what this regiment was about, and now uh, Civil War Trails, which commemorates all kinds of events, will have a new sign going up. It's going to be dedicated on March 27, 2023, so if you're hearing this show before then and you're in the area, stop by and see the dedication of the new Civil War Trails marker. Civil War Trails is a great program. Uh, Drew Gruber, who, who uh, runs it, uh, has been on this show before, and and uh, I'm sure we'll be on again at some point to talk about more progress. Uh, but always glad to uh, to hear about the things that they are doing. Speaking of hallowed ground, Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours continues to offer their this hallowed ground tour. Uh, apparently, they are consolidating the May and June tours this year into the May tour which is something of a relief because I, I do have other projects to work on over the summer months. Uh, so there will be uh, there will be some tours in the fall. Uh, I'll be leading one of those, uh, but we'll talk about those when they come around. But if you want to go this spring, uh, May is the month to do it. Go to the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours website, check it out. 
there are still seats on the bus for the May tour, and some of you listening, I know, have already signed up and been in touch with me. I'm looking forward to meeting with you. Uh, if you haven't signed up yet, uh, definitely uh, get yourself in there, and, and we will have a, uh, as always, a very meaningful and uh, educational and uh, what's, what's the right word? You know, it's not entertainment in the sense it's it's not fun, but it's 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 a great experience. Put it that way. Uh, also, a great experience is Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, an unpaid, unpaying, unaware sponsor of Civil War Talk Radio. But they do offer a 15% discount to you if you tell them you listen to this show when you sign up. It's June 9 through 14 this year. Uh, contact them and, and, and go there. I'll be speaking there. I'll be looking forward to meeting some of you there as well. Impediments of War, www.impedimentsofwar.org is where you find out what's happening here. Uh, you can make, you know, if you're hearing rumors and want to know are things true, is, is Jim Harbaugh really coming back to Michigan? Apparently, yes. Um, you won't find that at Impediments of War. But rumors regarding Civil War talk radio, am I really considering moving from Voice America to OnlyFans? Uh, no, that is a completely false rumor. I would never do such a thing. Um, indeed, the rumor didn't exist until I just said it. Uh, and you won't find that on Impediments of War either. But you will find out who's on the show next. Um, January 25th, Hampton Newsom will be back. Uh, his new book is about what's happening uh, in the Gettysburg campaign down by Richmond while the armies are up north. It's called Gettysburg's Southern Front. On February 1st, Eric Michael Burke will be our guest. He has a book about Sherman's 15th Army Corps and the origin of that unit, and it's getting a lot of good buzz among the profession. Uh, February 8th is still to be determined, working on that one, but February 15th, Gary Gallagher will be back. You all know him. And then on the 22nd of February, Rebecca Plant and Francis Clark are co-authors of a book about boy soldiers. It's called uh, Of Age, Boy Soldiers and Military Power in the Civil War Era. So we will learn something new. I will learn something new, certainly, uh, from that book, and I hope you will, too. Tonight we will learn something new, at least I certainly did from reading this week's book, about the Battle of Antietam. Uh, we've all read lots about that. Um, most of us have read Stephen Sears or James McPherson or others. Uh, but our guest tonight, Stephen Cowie, has written a book called When Hell Came to Sharpsburg, The Battle of Antietam and Its Impact on the Civilians Who Called It Home. Uh, Stephen, are you there? Hello, Jerry. I'm here. I can hear you fine. And thanks for inviting me to Civil War Talk Radio. Great. Well, glad to have you here. I, I'm uh, quite excited about this book. You're, you're the publicist at, at uh, Savas Beatty who published this book contacted me about it some time ago and said, you really want to have this guy on. This is a really interesting new approach. Um, and it says on the back, you've been researching this for 15 years. Uh, clearly, you must also have to eat and pay the rent. So, so there must be another day job in there over that time. Yes, there is a day job, and there's also a very patient and understanding wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that I, I can imagine. So uh, but what do you do when you're not writing about Sharpsburg? Well, for the, for the past 35 years, Jerry, I've worked in film and video production, um, 
essentially after receiving a degree in the subject, I worked in the Los Angeles film industry for 15 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for the past 20 years, I've managed a video production uh, department for a medical marketing firm in Tennessee. And of course, what does this uh, occupation have to do with history and the American Civil War? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> you know, there, there's sort of an advantage to that, though. And I'll, I'll when I talk to students who are thinking of a career in history, uh, you know, in, in public history or in academia, I'll point out that if you make this your career, then your your hobby is now your job, and uh, you've just lost your hobby. Uh, so there's something to be said for for keeping your passion free of what you do during the day. Don't have you found that to be the case? Absolutely. That's the you hit it. You, you hit it on the head there, Jerry. And I never thought about that, about turning it. You know, all of a sudden your passion, um, once you once you make a career of it, it no longer becomes your hobby. That's a, that's a that's a fascinating way of looking at it. I never I never really considered that for the, for professionals like yourself and others. Although, although if you're extreme enough, it can remain a hobby. Uh, uh, I will say I I'm here at eight o'clock. Uh, at night doing this because I enjoy it and the department university doesn't even know I'm doing it much less uh, reward me for it uh, I do it because I like it and and it's I, I think a lot of listeners and a lot of people in in history professionally really do love history enough that they can keep the passion going um, but this book I want to get to this book it is extraordinary in the uh, the level of, of detail and research that supports what you have to say. Um, what what got you interested in writing about this topic? Well, I'll try to connect the dots as, as simply as I can. Uh, basically, what my father taught social studies uh, to middle school students, so uh, his, his interest in, in history, mainly the Civil War, it passed down to me at a very young age. And mm-hmm. my hero uh, throughout, you know, first through fourth grade was Abraham Lincoln. I had his painting on my bedroom wall um, mm-hmm. when I was growing up in Michigan. It hung right next to a pennant of the Detroit Lions. But, uh, you know, not getting off topic enough. Um, wait, 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 the Lions <laughs> won the last, you know, they beat Green Bay in their magnificent game. I, where, where in Michigan did you grow up? I grew up, um, I, I, I lived there basically in, until I was around 13 is, is when we left Michigan. But I lived and grew up in a, a little town called Waterford, which is near Pontiac, oh, yeah. just northwest of Detroit. Okay. I grew up in Highland Park and then later moved to Gross Point, but uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I had a Lions poster on the wall too, and I have a Lions pennant and a poster. Excellent, uh, yeah, so, I so have we, to give we, a shout out to the University <laughs> of Michigan as well. They were my favorite team to root for, and they still are in the college Oops. world, and it's always a big day when they play that uh, that team down south. In the, that that, the, that <laughs> team, that's right. Go go Blue. Well, we've, we've just alienated so many listeners um, uh, <laughs> dumping on Ohio State and the Packers in one one sentence. So uh, you you had an interest through your your father's teaching experience. Yes, absolutely, and it was it was rather keen. In fact, by I think it was third or fourth grade, uh, he was pointing out articles in the newspaper about possible land development on the Gettysburg battlefield, and I was uh, writing uh, letters to the battlefield that he sent to them, and the the battlefield wrote me back to assure me they were going to try to prevent that from happening. But I, I, it, it it evidently was rather uh, you know a strong passion for the Civil War f- for me to be doing such a thing at a young age, but um, but I will say that as I grew up, we moved to California. Uh, and that's where I spent my my teen years and 
college years and early adulthood. But um, my passion for the Civil War became rekindled, if you will, when the movies, uh, you know, when Glory was released, the movie Glory in 89, followed by the Ken Burns series and, of course, Gettysburg, I think, in 93. But that kind of got me going in the Civil War again. But the end takeaway after I watched the Ken Burns series and read the, you know, um, Shelby Foote's trilogy, interestingly, out of all those battles covered, I, w- I, I was left wanting to know more about Antietam. It is. It, it, it was the first battle I was interested in because of a battlefield visit, uh, uh, interestingly, so so more things in common. Uh, well, what is striking about this, of course, is, as I said in the introduction, many people have written about the battle, uh, and there's often an obligatory chapter near the end saying, oh, and the, the, the bodies smelled really bad for several days, uh, and then we move on. You've gone into great detail here. Uh, what we'll do is take a short break. We'll come back and find out just what happened when Hal came to Sharpsburg. That's the name of the book we're discussing. The, our guest tonight is author Stephen Cowie. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice of America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P. O W I C Z G at ECU dot EDU. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Stephen Cowie, author of When Hell Came to Sharpsburg The Battle of Antietam and Its Impact mm-hmm. on the Civilians Who Called It Home. So, Stephen, how many people lived in Sharpsburg? Yes, uh, the 1860 census um, lists 2,400 people living in Sharpsburg District. And does that include the farms that we see on the battlefield today, or is that just in the, the, the town itself? Yes, the 1860 census included um, civilians in the town proper, as well as the outlying farmsteads that would include the Antietam battlefield. And that population um, 
of note, it, it that that included about 200 um, free persons of color, but it did not include the 150 slaves that were listed um, separately in the 1860 slave schedule. Yeah, because Maryland, although it's a union state, is is also a slave state, so that, yes. that makes sense. Now, when the when when Lee's army first arrives, they get there first, uh, and the the people in the town suddenly see these Confederate soldiers marching through. Uh, on September 16th, the day before the battle, Lee is massing an army there. Uh, the Union army is, is just showing up, and, and some artillery shells, long overshoots are landing in the town. Uh, how do the people respond? Well, it, it's it's rather interesting. They really stayed put when word spread to Sharpsburg that Lee's army had entered Maryland. Uh, this was a very, very crucial time for this community because most of the folks worked in farming, whether they owned the farms or whether they worked as farm hands or seasonal workers that were there to kind of help, you know, move the hay into the barns and, you know, thresh the wheat. But this was very valuable property that they wanted to, uh, you know, harvest and, and guard, if you will. But once the armies arrived in the Antietam Valley, which would include Sharpsburg and the nearby hamlet of Keatesville, that's when people realized there was a serious issue out of hand. And, you know, what, what happened was, is there was light artillery fire on the 15th that drove a number of people to leave their homes and make a mass exodus for the uh, Potomac River, which ran uh, just west of the town of Sharpsburg. But um, a lot of people still stayed put. And when September 16th arrived after the heavy fog lifted that morning, there was some serious cannonading that took place. And as you just mentioned, there was a lot of there were a lot of rounds that that landed west of the Confederate line, especially in the town of Sharpsburg. And that's when people made a mass exodus, leaving their homes, going to, you know, farmhouses and lock houses along the river. Uh, and there were many more that went down into their basements inside the in the town of Sharpsburg. And those would have been stone and brick dwellings that the civilians believed or hoped that uh, those sturdier walls could withstand the shell strikes. So if they left their homes, were, was their property safe? Oh boy, it was a difficult decision to be sure. Uh, you know what? Some people tried to board up their cellars, nail them shut. Other people tried to hide some of their valuables, but they were not safe. And that was that became a huge problem, especially in the town when you had all these um, all, a lot of stragglers in Lee's army that just went through and and took what they either needed or wanted for medical purposes or they were famished and took food or uh, the you know, there were a number of valuables, just personal items like um, family photographs, musical instruments, Bibles, ch children's uh, items and toys, things like that, just that just stripped and carried off. Well, that, you know, one of the uh, stories of the Civil War that gets told more and more nowadays, as, as we are still in what some people call the dark turn of Civil War studies, looking at the underside of things, the, the, the sacking of Fredericksburg by Union troops in December 1862, when, when uh, federal soldiers, you know, just loot the town after they've taken it, after it was defended uh, by, by Confederates. But in your description, uh, between the effects of the Confederates occupying the town before the battle and then Union soldiers occupying the town after the battle, Sharpsburg is pretty well looted. 
it, it was it was devastating. And, you know, I, I don't want to just singularly point out the Confederates because the Union forces were blamed equally for taking uh, numerous amounts of valuables from the homes. And that would have been, uh, you know, homes on and near the battlefield proper, as well as the town of Sharpsburg. But but absolutely, that 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 was one that I kind of refer to in, in layman's terms as a double whammy where you had Confederates, you know, occupying the town and all the area, you know, um, west of, of the federal line. The Confederate line of battle, of course, behind that, you had a lot of the, the Confederate trains and um, soldiers that were just kind of, uh, you know, encamped briefly, um, bivouacked rather. But all those, all those farmsteads and, and homes suffered losses during that three-day stay by Robert E. Lee's army. But that's the same area where a lot of the Union forces moved to after Lee withdrew. So, you know, here those poor people thought they were out of the, uh, you know, their their hardships had passed and here comes the union forces to camp on their properties again so it was very it was uh, devastating for those people well i want to ask more about some of the the detailed losses that that go on there but uh in terms of the battle itself there are some you know well-known sites on the battlefield today uh miller's cornfield certainly uh the muma farm the roulette farm uh which were there at the time. Did people stay in those houses, like literally right in the middle of the battlefield, or did those people all flee? Most of them were gone, Jerry. Uh, they had they had left uh, pretty much on the 15th is what I've been able to find. Um, some of them did leave on the 16th. But, you know, you had you had civilians that were after they had left and evacuated their homes, the the concerns were so strong afterwards that they returned to their homes to check on them or maybe to try to retrieve additional valuables and and horses and stuff that they may have left behind. So right in the middle of the battlefield, we know that William Roulette returned home on September 16th to check on his horses, which had been stolen by that point, two of them at least. And he decided to stay in his home. Uh, and of course, he was trapped there once the battle started on the morning of the 17th. Were any civilians killed during the battle? I have not been able to find any evidence supporting that, but there was a rumor of a child that was killed. This was a this was a story that kind of was reprinted and reprinted in various newspapers, and I was not able to, to find the actual original source of where that came from, but I looked through a number of local death records and civilian letters, um, all kinds of, uh, you know, obstetrical records just to see what newborns might have been, you know, born around that time. But regardless, I found no evidence of, of a civilian dying because of the actual combat. We can get into disease later because there yeah. were a number of folks that died of that. Now, the when the battle's going on, you, you describe very vividly how, as you just said, some people congregate in cellars of stone houses. Many go down to the river. There are caves there. There, there what they hope will be shelter. Uh, and you describe the, the horrors of battle. And that, as, as readers of Civil War history, we've all read, uh, you know, grotesque descriptions of how humans are killed in in battle we don't have to go into that in any detail here uh but what i found somewhat you know quite moving was the description of the silence after the battle that how how what an impression that made on the civilians it, I, I wish i had the quote written down in front of me but there was a great one where i believe he ended it with 
um, he became so lonesome because of the silence. And he mm-hmm. referred to it. This was a farmhand, a young farmhand who lived in Sharpsburg. And he, he referred to it as a curious, silent world. And that would have been the the, lo- the loss of um, so many uh, of animals and livestock and such that again we can get into later but there were no there were no chickens to crow or roosters to crow and the farm animals had been slaughtered and everything was just quiet the birds supposedly were so traumatized by the artillery fire that they did not return for several days so it was just an a very um a very unusual uh ambiance for those people and and when they come back to their homes uh again they find not just that their stuff is gone in many cases uh, or strewn about the place. But the description of people uh, going in their front door and finding their house full of dead bodies, uh, just, just a horrifying moment. Oh yes. There were some really gruesome accounts that I will not, I will not repeat to our, to our listeners right now. It can be found in, in the book, but, um, but yeah, it was just shocking for these people to, to come home and find such gore inside of their homes. Um, and you know, with the, with the medical takeover as well, that was another surprise to people when they would arrive and find all these wounded and, um, piles of amputated limbs on their front doors. And even worse for them, when, once they got inside their dwellings, they were, they were told many of, many of these families were told by the army surgeons in charge of, you know, individual field hospitals that there was simply no room for them. You know, their homes were filled with wounded and medical personnel, and they were going to need to find temporary lodging elsewhere. So that had to have been very um, unnerving, uh, surprising as well. Yeah, I mean, literally every building, well, not practically every building is turned into a hospital after the battle, as you described. Now, one thing that that I I found particularly interesting about the, the form of the book is First, that you have footnotes and not endnotes. Did you negotiate that with the publisher, or did they just say that's how we're going to do it? Uh, uh, that was actually stipulated um, ahead of time by by the publisher. Yes, it, which uh, I, I think a lot of listeners will agree that it's it's so much easier to read a book where the notes are on the same page as the references, instead of having to constantly turn to the back of the book to get your endnotes. But most publishers prefer endnotes; they're cheaper. Yes. Um, but you've got footnotes, and, and you, you have very, th- what I would call, thick documentation. You, you, you cite your source, you describe uh, whether it's a, a, a journal, a newspaper, uh, frequently a, a claim filed after the battle. Uh, and and you, you frequently will use, will actually cite, you know, quote the evidence. Uh, it, it, how does... I should give an example, but um, you know, you'll quote some some one phrase in the text, and then I go to the footnote, and you say this comes from this article or this this account, and then you'll give two or three more, uh, as a historian does, uh, supporting it. So, we're, the reader is actually able to follow the evidence uh, that you've given. The result is there are two parallel books here. The top half of the page <laughs> is the text, and the bottom half are the footnotes, and and they occupy almost as much space on every page. But they're enter. They, there's a wrong word, entertaining. But they're enlightening. They're they're not just uh, uh, page references. You actually have material in them that helps us see how you found what you found and how you draw your conclusions. So. Uh, talk about that structure. Yes, it it, it actually uh, at the time I was I was writing it, 
uh, Jerry, it, it really did feel like I was writing two books. And, you know, much of that was by design on my part because I had never written a book before and I do not have a background. I'm not a professional historian or an independent scholar, but I knew who my audience was going to be if this if this material was ever published. So I wanted to make sure that I was very careful and meticulous with my documentation. And um, I wanted uh, I wanted to prove myself as a rookie author to show that I, I did my homework, uh, so to speak. <laughs> well, th- this would definitely pass any you know, graduate course in terms of, of the, the doc- technical documentation. Um, it, it, it's well done and it gives the uh, I, well, let me. Get, I, here's an example. I noted uh, you, you often will encounter somebody referred to in in a one document, and then a similar name in another document. Uh, so a woman called Sally in this one is called Sarah in that one, and then your footnote shows a research of how Sally is a common nickname for Sarah, and you find three or four examples of people named Sarah in your sample who are also called Sally by their families, and therefore you conclude the one in question, who was called Sally, is actually Sarah somebody. Um, I found that fascinating. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I, I did keep in mind that there might be some genealogists who'd be interested in the story or local you know, researchers and stuff in Washington County, Maryland. So I, I did some of that work for them as well to see if they would appreciate that. But it, it, it helped me understand it because when I went through and did the genealogical aspect of research for this project, mm-hmm. it drove me uh, batty at times to try to figure out who was who. So I had to do a lot of work to, to, make, those, uh, to make those determinations. Well, we are still talking about the the day after the battle, and much of the book goes a lot further. So let's let's step ahead. Uh, in the immediate aftermath, you you describe in some detail, and listeners can uh, read as much of it as they like. I suppose the uh, the, the immediate problem of dead bodies, uh, the the incredible stench, then you describe the the actual process of decomposition. Uh, where were these bodies buried? Who buried them and where? They were they were interred in multiple places. Um, there's there's a wonderful source that um, some researchers recently unearthed. Uh, at the um, uh, it's referred to as the S. G. Eliot map, but that paints a very good picture of part of a, a large part of the battlefield. Actually, the entire battlefield to show where a lot of these mass graves were and single graves and so forth. But um, when you cross reference that with another document that's known as the Bowie list of Confederate burials, what you find is there were a lot of graves that were not listed on the S.G. Eliot map that would have been uh, west of the town of Sharpsburg or east of the battlefield in areas where some of the major field hospitals were located. So those would have been hospital graveyards. Um, but yes, they, the bodies were put, they were, they were buried uh, on lots in the town of Sharpsburg um, and farm fields and, and often places um, that were commonly tra- uh, traversed by families, you know, near the, near the house or near, the, um, near farm lanes or the barnyard. And it just made me wonder, even though I couldn't find the document, I couldn't find sources to confirm it, but it made me wonder, what did the families think? And more importantly, what, how did it affect the children who needed to pass mm-hmm. by and see these graves? Because many of them were buried so shallowly that it didn't take much like uh, a, a windstorm or, or a rainstorm or a foraging animal to expose the human remains. Now, those graves are largely not still there today, are they? 
They are not there today, but back in 2008, there was a hiker that came across human bones on the battlefield. And um, the end result takeaway of that, I was actually on a taking a tour with some of the rangers uh, that year. And they gave a, a pretty moving talk kind of indicating that it's their belief that there are still bodies buried on that battlefield that have not yet been located. So the one of the other consequences of these bodies being buried uh not just human bodies, but also animal bodies. There, there are thousands of horses that that are destroyed in the battle, uh, and as you point out, though, those are largely burned rather than buried. But this is going to cause a great uh, public health issue for the Sharpsburg area. We'll take another break at this point, uh, and uh, listeners. If you're like listening while you're eating lunch or something, uh, put that aside. Uh, we'll take a break. When you come back, uh, be prepared to find out what happens in the aftermath of the Battle of Antietam. It's detailed in the book called When Hell Came to Sharpsburg, The Battle of Antietam and Its Impact on the Civilians Who Called It Home. Author and guest tonight is Stephen Cowie. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Stephen Cowie, author of When Hell Came to Sharpsburg, The Battle of Antietam, and its impact on the civilians who called it home. So, Stephen, one of the things that doesn't get mentioned in most books about uh, Sharpsburg because the armies are no longer there. By November, uh, well, Lee's army is long gone. They leave uh, a day or two after the battle, and then uh, two days after the battle, and then uh, McClellan hangs around through the month of October, but eventually uh, the army leaves as well. 
And then we have uh, a, a typhoid fever outbreak that, that sweeps through the area. You argue that that's, that's connected with the battle, obviously. I do, yes. Talk, talk about how, how that comes about. One of the things I found when researching just Sharpsburg and its history is that it's located on terrain that's known for all the uh, all the geologists out there is uh, karst terrain, which is soluble limestone that has a lot of uh, sinking streams and sinkholes and underground streams. Um, but the, the takeaway from that, without getting into too much of that lesson, is that it's very easy for a lot of these openings in that terrain to have rainwater wash a lot of pathogens, pollutants into the water, and it is unfiltered. In, in other words, it connects directly with sources of, of, of drinking water, such as drilled wells and springs where people at that time uh, obtain their drinking water. So throughout time, I mean, it went back all the I think I found at least three sources that documented outbreaks of typhoid fever in Sharpsburg after the war. I think the, the most recent one was 1966, and they, they linked wow. it. Washington County hydrologists conducted dye tests and were able to determine that a lot of these typhoid fever outbreaks actually resulted from uh, you know, tainted groundwater that the civilians were drinking. So uh, it didn't take much. A lot of this uh, in those studies were animal manure. Sometimes people were just cleaning out privy, so it was human waste that caused it. But as I researched causes of typhoid fever, Fever, it kind of led me to connect with a lot of hospital data that a researcher named John Nelson had compiled for Antietam Field Hospitals, and he found that the three primary diseases in hospitals after the battle were typhoid fever, diarrhea, and dysentery. So that led me on a path to try to research as much as I could about the diseases and the medicines that were used to treat them during the Civil War. But what I found was with all the pollutants that were on the surface of of uh, of Sharpsburg's terrain after the battle, um, combined with the with one of the main spreaders of typhoid, which is the the housefly, um, mm -hmm. it was just ripe for an outbreak. With all the we were talking about all the manure from the army animals that were there after mm -hmm. the battle, eighteen thousand horses and mules attached to McClellan's army. I did a conservative calculation of animal manure. And came up with about 4,000 tons that might have been deposited uh, on that ground from September 15th through the 30th. And that would have included Lee's animals from the 15th to the 18th as well. But that is a source of a lot of diseases, um, horse manure. So when we factor in all the, the fecal waste of 75,000 encamped soldiers who remained in the area after the battle, combined with, with so many other things like uh, hospital trash and animal carcasses, uh, there were about... 1,600 civilian livestock that were slaughtered by the army after the battle. And there were civilian reports that a lot of these carcasses were just left aside to rot. The soldiers mm -hmm. didn't even take all the meat off them. So we can only imagine how many flies those would have attracted and so forth. But I'll kind of stop there because I could go on and on it, about uh, that. <laughs> well, it, it, there were um, there were some pages in this book, I will say, where you were describing particularly some of the, the decomposing human bodies after the battle where I just glanced at the page and said, I see where he's going. Next page. Um, <laughs> don't need to follow this in quite this detail, uh, but it's very impressive. Certainly it shows you've done uh, substantial research on this. And the, the result is, is a compelling argument that, that of course, all these armies being here caused a, a great deal of sickness. The federal army stays in place for, you know, 
close to a month after the battle. And you point out that that, in many ways, does more damage than the battle itself, that all these... Uh, McClellan's army does not have railroad connections from Antietam. And, you know, if, listeners, if you've been to Antietam, you know it, it's still kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, uh, it, it's not, you know, on an interstate or anything like that. Uh, so there's no way to get supplies there uh, easily. And as a result, the, the soldiers are hungry and they're eating all the local food. And tearing down the local fences for fuel and, and seizing local horses for transportation. They're, they're doing a lot of damage. Yes. And that, that was just, uh, there were just so many things that went wrong for, for that community during that time and for the army of the Potomac as well, because Mm -hmm. Sharpsburg was in a remote area. It was an agricultural sparsely populated community. And the nearest railroad depot at that time was the, uh, the depot at Hagerstown, which was about 12 miles North, I believe. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of the local bridges had been burned and, you know, a crucial bridge that was, that was South of Sharpsburg, actually near Frederick at Monocus junction the confederate uh confederates burned that bridge um intentionally to disrupt uh, supply um supply issues to create supply issues for mcclellan's army and they they burned that early in the maryland campaign but the bridge still hadn't been repaired by the time the battle took place and what you have are there were a lot of uh boxcars of medical items that were en route to mcclellan's army at the time that that bridge was burned and it just stranded those supplies so as a result, the quartermaster department wasn't able to get supplies into the area quickly enough, nor was the medical department or the commissary department. And when you read a lot of these regimental histories uh, of the days after the Battle of McClellan's Army, these soldiers, so many of them were just uh, just famished with lack of rations. And when the rations did trickle into camp several days after the battle, there were many complaints that they were inedible, uh, you know, wormy. Mm-hmm. Some of them were wormy. Some of them were just bad. But when you when you have fall harvest taking place, you know, right there in front of you, it was ripe for the taking. And a lot of these soldiers just disobeyed orders and took what they wanted. Um, others uh, were given permission by officers to take because they were they needed they needed the items to, uh, to um, not only feed themselves, but to feed their their like I mentioned, 18,000 horses and mules attached to McClellan's army. And those beasts required an enormous amount of daily forage to survive. Well, you have chapters uh, for, for readers who, who want this detail, and I enjoyed reading this. Uh, uh, you, you calculate the, the size of the corn crop, the size of the hay crop, the size of uh, oats, rye, wheat, and, and make estimates. And you then provide uh, today's dollar equivalent. Uh, so, so we're looking at the average farmer. I think you said lost four hundred dollars worth of corn, which might be eleven thousand dollars worth today. Uh, and that's just in the corn crop. And uh, uh, you you point out that the, the the armies took the corn fodder and all. So I learned that it's not just the ears of corn, but the the whole plant has different uses. Uh, the the level of of uh, instruction in this book is, is is remarkable to to come up with uh, uh, to just learn these extra things about uh, about how corn works for example. <laughs> Yes, I was going to say, Jerry, I was guided by some wonderful sources. I was very (laughs) fortunate in my research to locate um, 
roughly 250 civilian war claims at the National Archives in Washington. And these documents are not yet digitized. Hopefully they will be someday. So I had to go there in person and I you know, had to, had to make several trips there actually from my home base in Tennessee. But I was able to uncover a lot of information and I, I ended up uh, copying there more than 3,000 pages of these claims in records group 92 and 123. And I, I, I'd made hard copies for the purpose that I knew there was going to be a lot of information on these papers that I didn't understand and I didn't want mm-hmm. to just try to I didn't have I didn't have the time or the money with my day job to just stay in Washington as great as right. that would have been and just work out the archives indefinitely to read these papers. I I shipped them home and and went and spent several years having to go through and and analyzing these documents, figuring out what some of the jargon meant. Um and I really anything that I would come across that I didn't understand, I had to go off on another path and understand what that was. Like why is corn fodder important, you know, and why why would the farmers have grown two different types of hay, timothy and clover hay, and why was fencing so important? You know, I knew that they took a lot of rails, but why was it so important? You know, I needed to find those answers. The the fact that all these documents are there uh, brings us to what you talk about near the end of the book, that a lot of these farmers or or homeowners in Sharpsburg uh, appeal to the federal government for compensation. If if the army took something of theirs, uh, they they should get paid back. Uh, did people ever get paid back for all the damage that was done? It, it was a rough experience for them, Jerry. A, a lot of these folks were union loyal people. They did have some mm-hmm. um, some southern leaning Democrats in in the community, but they they still um, declared themselves loyal to the union and felt they should be compensated. But what I found, I had to really spend a lot of time going through the war claims process and and learning it. And in short, there were three different phases that they had to uh, uh, struggle through. Um, uh, The first was the Act of July 4 of 1864, followed by the Bowman Act in 1883 and the Tucker Act in 1887. And uh, the end takeaway of that, just to quickly summarize it, Mm -hmm. uh, the Act of July 4, 1864, I go into the book uh, to describe the severe frustrating limitations. You were lucky to get anything um, applying for for claims and compensation through that act. The majority of claims were rejected by Quartermaster General Montgomery C. Meigs, but um, uh, it was well more than half. But of the people who did receive settlements under that act, they received only 15% of the total amount claimed. That is one five percent, not 50. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... They're not getting it there. They did get an additional bite at the apple with you said the, the acts in 1883 and 1887. But now we're we're 25 years after the battle. Uh, how long did this process go on? The final claims that I reviewed that related to Antietam, uh, and I should also just quickly mention that all those 250 claims that I located at, at the National Archives, they all related to civilians and the Antietam campaign. So um, so I went through and had to, to look through all these claims to, to try to find rewards and look through a lot of congressional files. But um, the, the final cases that I reviewed for this study were closed in the year 1915. That would have been 53 years after the battle. So people are waiting a long time. Um, In your last chapter, you talk about recovery, but it sounds like the the whole region really did not recover from this experience for decades. Post-war economy was terrible, um, and people just had a a really tough time trying to – trying to recover and resume farming. There were people that did better than others, but what I found was there were just countless families that took advantage of better opportunities uh, 
in Western states like uh, Iowa and Indiana, Nebraska, uh, Kansas, and especially California. A lot of a lot of a lot of the children of the of those families that lived in Sharpsburg at that time uh, moved and left Maryland uh, in the 1860s to the 1880s. Well, it's certainly understandable why they would do so because it, the description from the trauma of the battle itself, uh, the danger to the individuals, and then the horrors of the the, the aftermath of the battle, the, the, the wounded and the dead everywhere, then the disease, the privation, the shortages when the Union troops are, are consuming everything, uh, and then the frustration of trying to get paid back. Uh, it, it It's a moving story, and I... I will admit when I first saw the uh, the title, uh, I was a little bit thinking, well, you know, what what's going to be here? I, I just wasn't sure. Uh, but the fact that I know more about corn and more about different <laughs> types of fencing and why it's important, uh, and we're not we don't have time to talk about that. So, listeners, if you want to know about fencing, uh, which which is an important Civil War topic, uh, there's a good chapter here. Uh, Really, this does tell a story. Do you think this is applicable to other battles in the Civil War? Do you think Sharpsburg was unique? uh, Just to quickly sum that up, Jerry, I think Sharpsburg was unique um, in the fact that unlike unlike Gettysburg and Monocacy, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, where the armies fought and and left shortly after leaving their medical personnel and wounded behind, um, McClellan's army stayed at Sharpsburg for six weeks while suffering from supply shortages. And also Mm -hmm. there was a a, a shallow waterway near Sharpsburg uh, after the bridges were burned in the area. That shallow water, uh, shallow crossing point, I should say, Mm -hmm. known as Blackford's Ford was the only way to get across from federal Maryland to uh, Confederate Virginia, West Virginia now. And that brought the armies uh, into Sharpsburg during the Gettysburg and Monocacy campaigns, which inflicted further hardships on citizens attempting to recover. Yeah, they they just could not catch a break there. But listeners, you can catch a break by reading this book. I, I highly recommend it. It is called When Hell Came to Sharpsburg, The Battle of Antietam and Its Impact on the Civilians Who Called It Home. It's written by Stephen Cowie, who has been our guest tonight. Stephen, thanks so much for talking about this book on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for having me on, Jerry. It's been an honor. I've enjoyed speaking with you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.